it's not what you'd necessarily expect at all. Uh, well, certainly not what I'd expect. I always expect quite a rugged landscape when yeah. you talk about mining. Yeah. Actually, um, the the farming that typically goes on in, in these areas is, is rice farming. Mm -hmm. It's a big paddy field, so it's very um, moist. Mm -hmm. And you've got this very kind of tropical, luscious feel. So lots of lush, long grass. Um, it's almost like the jungle in places. Mm -hmm. Very high humidity, you know, 90 to 100% humidity, mm -hmm. clearly depending on the time of year. And it's just almost like a kind of tropical paradise. Hello and welcome to episode three of Back to the Source. Today we'll be speaking about gemstones from Sri Lanka. In many consumer societies, gemstones are seen as beautiful shiny symbols of status or affection, and they're often embedded in expensive pieces of jewellery. However, for millions of artisanal miners around the world, pursuing a gemstone from underneath the earth is seen as their most feasible route to prosperity. Done right, artisanal mining can be a legitimate pathway to sustainable development. Done wrong, it can lead to devastating impacts for the communities and the environment where the gemstones are found. Every section of the supply chain, from a consumer right down to the miner, needs to play a role to ensure that benefits are experienced by everyone involved. In this episode, I'm speaking to a London-based jeweller aiming to do things the right way. Today's episode, we're going to look at gemstones from Sri Lanka. And I'm here speaking to Sam Stirrup from Blackacre. So, Sam, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, nice to, uh, nice to be with you, Sam. Um, so, yes, Sam Stirrup, I'm the founder and, and creative director of Blackacre. We are a, a relatively small boutique fine jewellery company based in London. And we specialise predominantly on the creation of bespoke jewellery. Uh, our point of difference i guess is that we like to take people on a complete journey all the way from the source through to the creation of a, of a final piece mm -hmm. i started collecting gemstones as you do as a child around the age of kind of 10 11 12 mm. just because i was attracted to their their natural beauty and their precious nature and that's the kind of passion and ethos that sits behind what we're we're doing today mm. okay great so Blackacre was uh, incubated as a as a ten year old. That's that's amazing. Why don't we start with you painting us a picture about what we would encounter if we went to Sri Lanka to try and source some gemstones? Perhaps it's worth just setting the scene mm. as kind of the typical mining setup in Sri Lanka, because I really feel strongly that it's one of the most progressive setups in the world. So you're, and I think this is kind of just drawing on my own experience, you know, there's a lot of things that go on in a lot of countries. So again, only drawing on what I've seen. Um, the typical mining setup in, in Ratnapura, for example, which is the mining region of Sri Lanka, there will be uh, an area of farmlands that's owned by a farmer. And a miner and a partner, uh, a miner and a farm will partner together to create a mine on the property. Mm -hmm. So the miner will say, "Okay, um, I'd like to mine on your property." To the farmer, and the farmer will say, "That's fine, but I want to cut of the action." And they'll create this almost mini project between them, where there's a kind of agreement that says, okay, you're allowed on my land to create a mine on this area, um, and we'll split the proceeds between us. Uh, that's in a very kind of simplistic way. From there, what happens is uh, a miner has to apply for a license, and the typical mining license in Sri Lanka is two years. 
So a very, very short license. The benefit of that is that it means that after that two-year period, the land has to be returned to its natural state. But because the land is owned by a farmer, it's also in the farmer's interest that the land gets returned to its natural state. Mm -hmm. So everyone is working on the same page, right? We're going to mine this plot of land, which is typically quite small, might only be one acre, for two years. We're going to see what we can find. After that point, we're all on the same page. We've got to return it to how it was before mm -hmm. as productive farmland. Mm -hmm. So it's no good just kind of completely hacking up the countryside mm -hmm. with, with total disregard for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so consequently, what you end up with is um, this, this artisan minor community, artisanal minor community, um, typically made up of men, um, can be as young as 18 all the way through to kind of I'd probably say, you know, 40 odd. You don't tend to get too many very old minors because it's, it's a young man's game. Um, it's it's very it requires a lot of kind of I can't think of the right word but exercise and mm -hmm. you have to be quite strong to climb up and down shafts and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully that paints a little bit of a picture of uh, of what's going on in Sri Lanka. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I've never heard of a similar kind of like land ownership sharing model um, with regard to mining, especially. Yeah, I think it comes so, so on the kind of proceeds point. Uh, at a mine, it's not as simple as like being one miner and one farmer. Clearly, there is a farmer that owns the land, but then there'll be a mine owner and under that a team of maybe eight miners yeah. all working at the same mine site. And there'll be a hierarchy there where you go all the way from the person that owns it through to the people that make the tea. Yeah. Uh, maybe not making the tea in Franca, yeah. but collecting the coconuts because yeah, yeah. um, they drink coconut water as a kind of as a, as a refreshment. Um, and the proceeds yeah. from any gemstone get split equally across that whole community. Yeah. So everyone who's working on this project, their, their sole dream is to get to a point where they find one big stone, and that's their lucky break. And people might not find a, a stone like that. It might be a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But everyone is hanging out on the fact that they might just find this one big Padparash or sapphire that's going to yeah. go for millions, and that will set them off for the rest of their lives. So there's a lot of kind of hope involved in, in the yeah. mining there. And so, so what happens then, let's say a, a stone is found, a valuable sapphire, mm -hmm. and it's found in one of the by one of the mining workers within the community, they take it to the mine boss. They then need to find someone to sell it to. Yeah. Is that when you guys come in or is there another, is there a middleman? So, so the typical journey of a gemstone in, in really simplistic terms would be a stone is found at the mine. It then gets taken to a rough market. So yeah. this is where the rough goods before they're cut are traded between people. And the expertise at that stage is uh, having the eye for understanding what a rough gemstone can be turned into. Now, there'll be some instances where you might have a really big, rough piece of stone. Uh, but actually, once you cut it down, it won't be possible to have a big bit of stone because of the way the inclusions are, because there's a fracture in the stone or all the colour will drop out. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a really, really good understanding of, of what a rough stone can be turned into to understand the ultimate value. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll go through the whole cycle and then come back to kind of how we work. So once you've traded in a rough market, a rough, uh, you know, a cutter might buy a stone at a rough market. Uh, they'll then cut the stone. 
And then there's a cutstone market. So in, in uh, like Sri Lanka, we're talking about Barawula, there's a cutstone market that happens every Wednesday in the morning. And people come out into the streets and they have their brifkas, which are small parcels, paper parcels, and they buy and sell cut gemstones just in the street. Um, so at that point, you're then dealing with finished goods that could be put into a piece of jewellery. Uh, again, you're very reliant on your expertise. So if, uh, if you thought, oh, I might just go buy a sapphire in Sri Lanka at the market, um, you could get into a bit of a pickle because there's no testing, there's no laboratory. You're literally buying on the spot with what you see with the eye. Um, so you've got to back your ability to buy, buy the right stone. Um, then thereafter, what might happen is someone might buy a stone in the cut market They'll take it to a laboratory to grade it to ensure it is what they think it is. But you might also recut the stone. Uh, now, at that point, the stone is probably going to get into the hands of a wholesaler, mm -hmm. typically. Mm -hmm. um, and the wholesaler will sell globally, internationally, through maybe it's different trade fairs, online accounts, and, and the stone will get sold into you know, a bespoke jeweler in London. Where we typically like to to get in on that cycle is, um, you know, as much as one would love to get in on the action from the mine, it's just not realistic and, and, and not possible within this kind of artisan mm -hmm. um, structure. You'd also be cutting a lot of people out. So what we like to do is, is buy stones at either the rough market or the cut market, mm -hmm. knowing fully well from which region, which mining concession those individual stones have been through, mm -hmm. which means that the people who mine the stone are still getting the benefit, the people at the rough market and the cut market are still having the benefit. Because I think it's uh, it would be naive and unfair to just cut those people out. Um, what we want to cut out is the kind of unnecessary rows of wholesalers thereafter. Um, so yeah, so typically a very long-winded answer to your question, but typically yeah. we buy at the rough market or the cut stone market and then recut stones ourselves. Why aren't other companies doing this? Is it, is it more expensive? Is it? Uh, I think the, the answer is relatively simple and it's just, it's really hard okay. and it's not straightforward. Um, you know, if you think, uh, if you're a jeweler, let's say based in London, how much easier is it to pop down to a supplier, two roads down, buy a stone, show it to a client, build yeah. a design around it, um, rather than taking the risk of traveling out, you know, it's eight hours to Sri Lanka, you've got to yeah. find your accommodation, you've got to have trusted relationships, mm. you've got to take the risk of buying stones on spec, on site, mm. then getting them certified. Mm. You know, in the instance of the last two years, you then had to deal with COVID and possibly having your travel cancelled. So mm. the, there's a huge amount of risk and, and effort involved, mm. which means that the easy option is to, to not do it. Yeah. So, um, and, and we're not by no means at that perfect stage yet because everyone's, you know, we're constantly looking at new ways of improving. Yeah. Um, but the reason why not everyone goes out to countries to buy stones from the source is that it's really hard. Yeah, and I imagine part of what makes it so difficult is actually reaching the, the place where the gemstones are mined. Um, so maybe you can tell us a bit about the landscape where the gemstones come from. It's not what you'd necessarily expect at all. Uh, well, certainly not what I'd expect. I always expect quite a rugged landscape when yeah. you talk about mining. Yeah. Actually, um, 
the the farming that typically goes on in in these areas is is rice farming mm-hmm. it's a big paddy field so it's very um, moist mm-hmm. and you've got this very kind of tropical luscious feel so lots of lush long grass um, it's almost like the jungle in places mm-hmm. very high humidity you know 90 to 100 percent humidity mm-hmm. clearly depending on the time of year and it's just almost like a kind of tropical paradise um you know you you just wouldn't expect that when you arrive but because and also because the mining plots are so small even with mining operations going on you still have this feeling of being immersed in a very natural environment Mm -hmm. um so the landscape is actually beautiful and spectacular as is the case in many of of these areas where you know precious resources exist yeah um hence why it's so important that that we find ways to to not damage that environment and ecosystem so sri lanka is one one example in terms of other regions that you might source from is that your north star as a sustainable model that you can tap into and if so what other ones are on your on your radar yeah it's it's a good question i think Every region and location is different and has different nuances, and and we're simplifying what is is an immensely complex you know yeah. world and, and system. Um, if I take Sri Lanka as, as the example of kind of being very good, it's very good at the the land component, the land getting put back to its natural state. Um, you know. In terms of things it's not good at, if you look at female employment in Sri Lanka in the mining industry, it is diabolical. Mm. Um, you tend to find that the the only time that women get employment in, in the mining trade there is actually in the cutting. Mm-hmm. Um, so they actually have a lot of work to do there in terms of equality, but then also we can't impose Western kind of norms on, on you know, the, the third world in some instances. So again, like I say, it's very, very complex, mm-hmm. but kind of giving a different approach. I know in Tanzania, there's been a whole host of um, hugely positive, positive initiatives where there are now women working in mining mm-hmm. communities and from a kind of social perspective, it, it's thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, actually, one of the places I would like to go to next is Tanzania mm-hmm. and look at the sourcing of, of Tanzanite or going to Kenya and looking at the sourcing of, of um, Savarite garnet. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that it would be really interesting to have that cross comparison of, of, of the two regions. Mm-hmm. In terms of how we get peace of mind from the sourcing of stones everywhere, largely it's going on on relationships and trust that's been built up over a period of time. And that understanding through those relationships of, of what route a stone has come through to reach a point at which we'll say, OK, we'll buy it. And if we don't have conviction over where a stone is from, then we won't buy it because our clients don't buy into that. Yeah. Um, we have to be able to tell the whole, whole journey and the whole story. Yeah, yeah. That's let, let's chat about the the clients for a bit because I'm interested in the type of people who you're attracting. What kind of questions are they asking about about where their stone comes from? Yeah, I think it's an increasingly important thing in people's minds um, when someone buys a piece of jewellery. The the primary kind of reason they buy a piece won't be. Um, where's it come from mm. or, or what's the source um, it's but it's a key component if, 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 if you don't have that traceability understanding then people won't touch you mm-hmm. um, so it's almost like a given now that you have to have that 
that traceability. In terms of the kind of the questions that people ask, people are looking for peace of mind. Mm. Um, they want to know where this stone has come from, who's mined it, who's touched it on its journey from you know its source in Sri Lanka or um, Tanzania or Kenya through to being in the finished piece. And they want peace of mind that there's been no negative footprint or no neg negative impact in the mm. world. Ultimately, why do you wear a piece of jewellery? Well, it evokes or captures emotions, feelings, memories, mm. you know, be it, uh, you know, looking back at your wedding or your engagement or the birth of a child or a birthday. It's a special time. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to then tarnish it by having something that hasn't been through all the right steps and the right process. So I think, you know, provenance is the key word there. So yeah. you know, where's it come from and who's touched it on the journey? And to the extent, you know, we can, let's have a positive impact on the world rather than a, a negative one. Yeah. And and you guys are doing some great work at telling that story. Um, maybe you could just explain a bit about the, the film you've, you've made as well. Yeah, so we did a film in Sri Lanka basically showing the journey we go on um, when we're sourcing stones in, in Sri Lanka. And, and the reason why, the primary reason for doing the film was... I feel so often we hear people essentially what we call greenwashing now saying, you know, oh, are these stones ethical or it's been through these supply chains? And um, I think I was a bit fed up with that. And I'm very much of the ilk that the actions speak louder than words. So I just thought, let's let's take some cameras with it and let's just show people what we do and how we do it and the journey we go on. Um, so the film, very briefly, it's only, you know, five minutes worth of footage. But it touches on the surface of, you know, showing us at the mine site, showing us at the rough market, briefly going through what we're looking for mm -hmm. um, when we're assessing stones to be cut all the way through to, to, to the finished stones. And actually, interestingly, a lot of the feedback we've had from the film is actually there's a desire to have a, a much longer form documentary that goes into it in a bit more detail. Um, so I think, you know, the next one we do, which could well be, like I say, you know, Tanzania or, or yeah. Kenya, will be a much longer in-depth analysis of, of the way it's done. Because I think people are genuinely interested. Yeah. Um, you know, our, our clientele, one of the primary things that we like to offer is the education side of things, getting people to a point where they can actually say, please, could you make me this with this specification, this stone and, you know, all of these components. That then means you've got that person to a really empowered, educated position, which then makes the process more enjoyable exactly. for everyone. Brilliant. BBC iPlayer watch. watch <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So far, Sam has set the scene for us on what we could expect to find when sourcing gemstones from Sri Lanka. He's also touched on what makes Blackacre's approach both unique and uh, extremely challenging. And now in the final section, we are going to tackle a, a nice juicy question around whether it's even possible to refer to mining as sustainable. So I hope you enjoy Yeah, I think um, the only thing I would say, which again we've touched on in part, is the nuances and, and the complexity to to all of this. Um, we don't live in in a, in a perfect world, but what yeah. I say to to our, our clients and everyone is that there's a right and a wrong way of doing things. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, we are taking stones out of the ground and we are using natural resources. But if you do things in in the right way, yeah. there is a way that you can have a positive impact. And there is, you know, um, 
a way that you can have peace of mind that things have been done correctly. Mm. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, if things are done poorly, then it really is very negative. Yeah. And we have to, you know, be very frank and assess the world. It's not everywhere is perfect and not everything is being done correctly. So it's about finding these instances of positivity, like in Sri Lanka, where the things are going well and are being done positively f- yeah. from a mining perspective, at least, um, and championing those and finding more instances of that and then fueling the enthusiasm and the kind of motivation to kind of make these people the example so that more people aspire to that. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, when we go down, words like sustainability and ethical, ethical um, are very challenging words to use. And you really have to understand the full system to really grasp them. So, mm-hmm. um for example, if you're looking at um, a small-scale mining operation that works on one hectare and you have one person working that bit of land, mm. well, there's going to be no damage to, to the natural habitat there, really, with mm. one person working. Mm-hmm. But then what's that from a social perspective? No one's employed. Mm. So you take the other extreme, you have a hectare with a 1,000 people working on it, where you've got a 1,000 people employed, but the land is getting completely destroyed. Mm. Um and in your components of ESG, as, as in the corporate world, people like mm. to put it, you've got environmental, social and governance. Well, you've, there you go. You've got the primary offset between those two. So yeah. um, it's hugely complex. And in a nutshell, we should just continue to find new and the best ways of doing things in, in the right way, I think, is, yeah. is my perspective, at least. And my, my question was going to be around, yeah, how you, how you harness your position here in London and your access to, you know, the consumers here in London with disposable income. How do you how do you make sure that you are championing those those stories and more of those funds are getting sent to, as you said, the people and the places who are doing it in the in the right way? Yeah, I think I think first of all, like you can't sleep at night unless you're having a positive impact. So you're doing something that leaves a lasting impression. So. As much as everyone needs to make a living and uh, and so on, uh, I think actually what lasts longer and lasts the test of time is is stories that you create or memories you leave mm-hmm. with people. Um, so for me, a lot of what we're doing is that. So telling the story as best as we can, mm-hmm. immersing people in in this world that I love so dearly of mm-hmm. kind of sourcing stones, building beautiful pieces of jewelry. Uh, and really, you know, that pillar of education comes through that. And if people really buy into to what we're passionate about in mm. terms of that, then they're therefore willing to to be more involved in that process and support the, the smaller scale miners and mm. the more boutique style um, suppliers and in industry. Yeah. I think it can only have like a positive effect. So yeah, the key things for me are an immersive experience and an educational experience, yeah. which result in a beautiful piece of jewelry as an end product. But really it's not so much about the end product. It's about everything as a yeah. journey. Uh, you, you bore me. <laughs> that's that's, that's say. Just need to drum up a bit more cash to, to afford a bit of jewelry. But um, this is this is an idea I had. I don't know before we before we finish up. But it's an idea I had for for coffee about if people were to go into a coffee shop and you could, as you say, make this experience more immersive. Suddenly, transform them to the place where the coffee was grown. It would help kind of understand why coffee prices are increasing at moment, for example. Yeah. Could you ever? I mean, you're kind of doing that with your movies and stuff, but, but that, that would be quite interesting, wouldn't it? To, yeah, uh, to I mean, 
if I tell you my dream vision or like yeah. what my dream client journey would be, it would be, you know, once a year we do a trip to, to Tanzania. Let's yeah. say that it's coming up in a year's time. Maybe we can rally some troops now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're doing a trip to Tanzania in a year's time. Um, we're going to buy X, Y, and Z stones. Who wants to come? And as a product of that, we'll help you buy the stone in, in Tanzania. We'll bring it back mm. and we'll build a design around it. Because actually everyone wants to be a connoisseur now. Yeah. Um, people have gone off kind of, you know, brand names for the sake of brand names. People, want, particularly in jewellery, people want to be sat at a dinner party or an event and actually have a piece of jewellery which has a real story behind it. Yeah. And, you know, what better story can there be than saying, actually, I went to Tanzania and this is a stone I picked out in a mine and then we brought it back to London and we designed a piece that features all these different meanings that mean something to me personally. Yeah. That's got to be the end goal. Mm -hmm. Like that would just be the most amazing experience for for anyone. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So hopefully that gives a bit of a sense of like what I'd like to try and get to at least. Yeah. Um, Buy one ring, get a trip included. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that sounds good to me. Cool. Well, let's let's finish off with a few quick questions. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's been it's been fascinating chatting. But the first one is you know for people listening to this podcast. What can they What can they do to to understand more about uh, the, the Sri Lankan gemstone miners? Um, yeah, I, I think it's it's also about miners in general. So as a consumer, the power you have is to to ask questions mm -hmm. and be demanding with those questions. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's a, a, it's sufficient anymore to have just a page on a website that says we're sustainable mm -hmm. or a passing comment with, you know, yes, our stones are sustainable. As a consumer, you should be asking the questions of, well, why are they sustainable? Um, you know, where have these stones come from? And actually, um, you know, it's not just a case saying, oh, you know, they're, they're probably from X, Y, and Z. You need to actually be able to see that or experience it. Mm -hmm. um, and like I say, you know, Again, nobody's perfect, and, and sometimes it is the case where you can't say a stone came from this mine, this location, because the world hasn't got to that stage yet. But it's it's making sure that people are being open and honest and telling you the, the correct information mm -hmm. so that ultimately, as a consumer, you have total peace of mind in, mm -hmm. in what you're purchasing. And through asking those questions and being inquisitive and wanting to learn more and making the right purchases... Um, you then get to a stage where you're encouraging that sort of behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, where you buy goods from, no matter what it is, is yeah. what you're supporting. And it's a vote. Yeah. So a little bit of a tangent, but an example I have at home is we no longer eat meat yeah. unless it's bought from the local farm shop, which yeah. is you know organic and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. Because that's our, our vote. We're saying, well, we don't want to support the, the big supermarket where all the animals are farmed intensely and you know all sorts. Actually, we're putting our money where our mouth is and we're buying local and we're buying from the farm shop. It also, as a byproduct, means you eat less meat, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it's harder to get to the butcher and all the rest of it. But yeah. And... Alongside Blackacre, who are the other brands or companies that you admire doing a similar thing? Um, there's lots of people I admire because everyone seems to be doing amazing things. I think one person who I spoke to recently really stands out, so not so much a brand, but, but Hugh Brown, who is, you, know, you probably know him, he's a, um, a world-renowned artisanal miner photographer, so he travels the world telling the stories of artisanal miners. 
Um, and listening to him was a really eye-opening experience because he gives a very frank and blunt assessment of the world, probably too blunt for the kind of um, consumer-facing world we live in, but actually as someone who's passionate about the industry, it was, was hugely interesting. Um, and actually he gives, gives some very good advice in terms, you know, I said, you know, what's your advice for us and what can our consumers do more of? And he just said very simply, travel more, get out more and experience more. Yeah. Because he was saying, you know, in inverted commas, our, our connected world is increasingly disconnected. Yeah. And unless you actually get out there and, and you see things, experience things, meet people in the flesh, mm-hmm. you don't build these emotional relationships, whether it's with people or the environment, mm-hmm. which means you don't want to protect it or savor it. Yeah. Um, so that I thought, you know, was amazing. And then in terms of other brands that, you know, I look up to or aspire to, I think, you know, companies like uh, Boodles have started to do a fantastic job with the, the Cullinan mine. They have a relationship with the Cullinan mine. So for a lot of their high-end customers, they will actually buy specific rough stones. This is my understanding of it, at least from an outside-in perspective. They will buy rough stones from the Cullinan mine. They will then cut them into a specific shape for their clientele yeah. and able to tell that journey. And I think that's you know very admirable and, and something that, that we aspire to do as well yeah. um, on that scale. Um, but there's plenty of good things going on. I think a lot yeah. of the, the best things being done are often by the smallest people yeah. because they're more flexible, they're more versatile. So there are bland, brands using um, recycled metals to do all sorts of different things or being inventive of using new approaches. And mm-hmm. actually some of these small companies are doing really positive things too. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, yeah, on Hugh Brown, I've, I've never met him, but I, I, I think I follow him on LinkedIn and I would urge yeah. anyone listening to this podcast to follow him on LinkedIn. Yeah, he, he really does almost, transport you, doesn't he? Yeah, he? you get almost daily updates of these incredible images alongside a, a massive long story that explains everything and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great shout. And then finally, can you recommend a piece of culture, book, film, podcast, um, I guess alongside your your documentary or, <laughs> yeah. or your documentary. Um, yeah, I have to be very honest. Like, like I said, honesty is important. I don't actually read um, many books or any books at all. Yeah. But maybe that's the creative streak in me. So yeah, it has to be picture books or, or me doing drawings. Yeah. Uh, but I think what I found interesting is making sure I'm following people who can educate me. And yeah. I think, you know, giving the same example again, Hugh Brown is a good example of that because it's by following him and reading his materials, it's something that I can learn more about everything that he says. I'm kind of picking up on different components. And for me, it's that educational side of things. So anything which educates you, I think can be a, a good thing. So a bit of a cop out, but yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. Brilliant. Well, that's it. For me, uh, thanks a lot for, for chatting, Sam. That was well, fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for asking me to, uh, to be involved. So, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Back to the Source. Thanks very much for listening. We would love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or guest recommendations, you can email me at backtothesourcepod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from. This episode was produced by me, Sam Stewart, 
with the soundtrack composed by Henry Middleditch and podcast artwork done by Storm at Hill. Thanks a lot and see you next time.